my name is Blanche, and I am a member of a worldwide fellowship known as Al-Anon High. I have been a member of the Al-Anon family group since July 7, 1964, but I have been addicted to mood-altering, mind-changing men ever since I can remember. I hear some identity out there. <laughs> I have to remember that even after nearly 28 years, I am one person away from an obsession. And 28 years makes me a survivor, not a savior. And I need to say that to remind myself of it on a regular basis. I would be remiss in my good manners if I did not thank the committee and all of you very warmly for the invitation to this most beautiful city. To Lois and Bob for taking such good care of us, for the food, for the accommodations, for the gifts. The first time I ever spoke in Canada was here in 1974 or 5, we can't figure out which. At this North Shore Roundup, it was held at a school in North Vancouver. And I have since been privileged to talk a dozen or so times around your magnificent country. And I love coming back here. If you're in on the beginning of a conference, the first few years, I don't know about all of you, but I feel a proprietary interest in it. You know, it's mine. I'm with you one hour, and it's my conference. <laughs> and I have always loved hearing about this one and getting tapes from it. I am so pleased to be back. I'm insecure when I don't know where I am. And so before I came that first time, I began to read something about Canadian history. I had forgotten what I knew. And I read a lot of June Caldwood, who is marvelous, and Pierre Burton. And some of the things I learned, I just as soon not have known. British Columbia has 150,000 square miles more than Texas. <laughs> it's 900 miles across Texas. It's 1,500 across Ontario. So when I'm here, I'm a very humble Texan. Now, you may think that's a contradiction in terms, <laughs> but I try to be. I was back again 10 years ago, as Lois said, and I hope as long as you have this conference from time to time, I will be privileged to come share with you. You are certainly an athletic people. We were driving around the other day, and I saw people jogging up and down these steep hills. Um, I get my exercise sprinting through airports. When I get the urge to exercise, I usually lie down until the urge goes away. But I can admire people who are that disciplined. I have been trying for the last few years to be as open and as honest as I know how to be behind this podium. To begin with, if I'm not, you will know it. I have friends in California who refer to that phenomenon as podium pentothal. It's some sort of truth, truth device that, um, that lets you know if someone behind a podium is being phony. But for a very long time, it was easier for me to tell you what I thought than how I felt. It was easier to talk about the program than about me. And sometimes listeners don't hear the difference right away, but I wasn't reaping the benefits that come from an honest sharing. So I remember the exact time that I decided I've got to quit that, and I've got to tell these people how I feel and what's going on with me. Because that which does not come from the heart does not reach the heart. 
and I very much want to reach your heart this morning. Therefore, I need you loving me back while I'm talking, please, because I feel very naked and vulnerable up here. Thank you. I came here to participate in your conference and not to perform, and I have enjoyed the participation so far very, very much. I never talk without using notes. If you have a problem with that, I suggest you call your sponsor and talk about acceptance. If you could hear me when I didn't use them, you'd be glad that I do. Those of us who are privileged to share our stories in a great many places sometimes have a hard time. We want to bury them, and the truth hasn't changed. And so I have only one story to tell you. And I'm not going to go out and do it over again, so I'll have a different one for you. Besides, I would rather you leave this this roundup thinking what a marvelous program than what a marvelous speaker. I came into Al-Anon kicking, screaming, clutching my halo, wrapping my robes of righteousness about me, and protesting to everyone who would listen, and a lot of people who didn't care, that I was fine. Thank you. I had not done the drinking, and I did not need the therapy. I am so grateful that God led me to a group of people who were diligent about practicing the principles of the Al-Anon program. And what I know of them today, I know not because I read them or someone recited them to me, but because they were practiced lovingly and tenderly on me. This group loved me when I was unlovable. They tolerated me when my behavior was condescending and patronizing. And they forgave me when I was sometimes really unforgivable. And I got a glimpse of what the principles could do long before I was able to practice them myself. I began to learn some things about Al-Anon that is not a ladies auxiliary, that is not a sit and bitch club, it's not a coffee clutch, and I was with people who were serious about recovery. I don't know whether you have this problem in British Columbia, but we do in Texas. There are well-meaning members of AA. I truly think they, they don't know any better, who refer to any non-alcoholic in their family as an Al-Anon. That is like referring to a still-drinking alcoholic as a member of AA. So for the record, an Al-Anon is a member of an Al-Anon family group who attends meetings regularly, has a sponsor, reads the literature, works the program. And any other non-alcoholic you know who isn't doing that doesn't know anything about the Al-Anon program. So those people are misinformed, don't listen when they talk. They are not carrying the message, they are spreading the disease. But I continued, oh, you do have some up here, all right. When I continued getting a glimmer of, of what this was all about, I learned that Al-Anon members are not cookie bakers and coffee makers. Above all, we are not AA groupies. This is not a therapeutic tool for the treatment of alcoholism. This program does not promise to save marriages, only sanity. And I thought both of those were in fine shape when I got to you. I certainly lived to learn better than that. And that happily ever after doesn't always mean walking hand in hand into the sunset together. Happily ever after means my personal recovery. And so I have a success story to share with you this morning. Vince said Friday night that women are not the enemy. Let me tell all of you who are in AA that Al-Anon is not the enemy. We, we are the ones who are absolutely enchanted 
by your charm and your wit and your intelligence. What can I tell you? We are the ones who find you irresistible. And we're on your side. And we are in this together. Uh, well, thank you. I've, I've never said that from a podium before, but I decided I would say it today. I feel very safe with you. That's a neat feeling. An analogy I always use about the beginnings in the program is that of my mother's illness and death. She died in 1965. We had been with you a year. I absolutely adored her, and I thought I could not stand this loss. The last time I visited her, she was in Florida. I was in Texas. I had stepped out into the hall because I was crying, and a woman whom I've never seen before or since, I don't know how she knew who I was, beckoned me into her room, and she said, your mother's going to be all right. I said, oh, you don't understand. Her illness is terminal. And she said, I didn't say she's going to get well. I said she's going to be all right. And my mother did not get well, and she has been all right ever since. It's very much as if when I got to you, you had said to me, you're going to be all right. And if you had, I would have said, oh, you don't understand. I have a barely sober husband. And you would have said, oh, we didn't say you'd have a sober husband. We said you're going to be all right. Or I would have said, I have a very fragile, shaky marriage. And you would have said, we didn't promise you a lasting marriage. What we said was, you're going to be all right. Because somehow that's what I heard. And I have been. Better than that, I know that, that I will be. I believed everything you told me then, and I still do. And I have been all right. Our literature tells us specifically how to make an Al-Anon talk. I have not yet memorized it. Any year now, I am going to. It says, Al-Anon talks can be and too often are. Merely a repetition of past and present sorrows. Sketching the background is important and has its place, but it's merely the foundation of the whole talk. The best talk, the one that helps the most people to the highest degree, is the one which brings out just how the program works and how the speaker follows it. A good talk may be divided into three parts. How sick I was, how well I am, what helped me to get well. Of these three, the emphasis should be on what helps me to get well. Also, I agree with Father Martin, who says that when he's sitting out there and you're up here behind the podium, he says, you're playing with my life. Don't tell me how sick you were without telling me how well you are. And so I hope to spend the majority of the time I have with you this morning telling you what helps me to get well. I was born on my grandmother's farm in northeast Florida in the year of our Lord. Well, I no longer say which one because of... I have reached the age where I not only lie about how old I am, but I forget what I said that it was. <laughs> I will just tell you that I'm somewhere between Blue Lagoon and on Golden Pond. <laughs> we were not we were not tourists in Florida. My family had been there for four generations when I was born. Tourist was a bad word. Anytime I behaved in a way my mother considered inappropriate, she would say, don't act like a tourist. I'm a very good tourist when I go places now because I know how to behave. The first 10 years I lived in Jacksonville, my father was a charming and intelligent and talented and sensitive alcoholic. Unfortunately, he was also violent. I loved him very much, and I knew he loved me. I was never, thank God, sexually abused, but I was a badly battered child. 
It was years before I could say that from a podium. And it needs saying. It is not that uncommon in an alcoholic home. And let me say quickly that it is not always the alcoholic who does the battering. It just happened to be that way at my house. This is during the Depression, and we lived in grinding and abject poverty. I don't mean no luxuries. I mean not enough to eat, the days on end, insufficient clothing, and we lived in a very blighted area of town. Let me digress long enough to say that poverty has nothing to recommend it. It does not ennoble the human character. It is a debasing and a degrading way to live. But even in this area of town, bad as it was, the neighborhood children were not allowed to play with me. I know now that their parents were understandably apprehensive about what went on at my house, but I didn't know that as a little girl, and I felt rejection and rage. And not on a conscious level, but at some level, I decided I could get back at them some way, somehow, and I did. I did it in school. I could beat the socks off every one of them, and I relished every minute of it. That was a bad motive, but there was a good byproduct. I fell in love with learning. And I've never fallen out of love with it. To this day, the most exciting thing that can happen to me is a brand new idea. By the way, the older you get, the fewer of them you, fewer of them you encounter. <laughs> but it, left, it really left a mark on me. As the other speakers have said, I in no way blame my problems on my parents at all. I was loved. And they were 19 and 20 when I was born, and I think about it, and I am aghast at the idea of taking on a child at that age. They were... They did everything they knew to do. My mother and I were especially close. She and my father were divorced when I was eight. The violence had just become more than anyone could handle. She remarried a couple of years later, a man that, as it happened, didn't drink at all. We were not close, he and I, but we both loved my mother so much, and it was a real bond between us, and we felt a real affection for each other. The uh, worst of the poverty was over. We had the necessities of life. But college was considered a luxury, and when I wanted to go to college, they were sort of mystified. No one in my family ever had. I'm the oldest of 21 first cousins on my mother's side, and almost all of them have gone on to school since they finished high school. And at family reunions, I'm really obnoxious. I remind them that I blazed the trail there. And <laughs> Besides, I wanted to go to Texas. I wanted to go to Baylor University, and that's where it happens to be. It was then and is now a very expensive private university, and I paid for it myself. I worked a year between high school and college. I worked at college. I worked in the summers. I had one loan and one scholarship, and I got through on the narrowest shoestring you have ever seen, but I loved it. I've never been happier than those four years, and I think I received a splendid education. Here again, I don't recommend working your way through, if you can manage not to, because there were a lot of things I didn't get to do. But I had a marvelous time, and I loved the learning. My mother had said when I started talking about Baylor, well, all right, if you want to go to school in Texas, but you know what will happen, she said. Uh, you'll end up marrying a Texan. You'll spend the rest of your life out there because they don't transplant. And, of course, I told her I was going to do no such thing, but I did, and they don't, and I have. And so <laughs> she was right about that, as she was everything else. You need to understand that Texas is a state of mind. <laughs> They've never forgotten that they were a nation. And this is the kind of pride that they feel. 
I hope you love where you live, because those of us in Texas wouldn't live anywhere else, and that's sort of astonishing in August every year. It's uh, not fit for human habitation in August. So we have bumper stickers that say things like, on Earth as it is in Texas. <laughs> My father-in-law told his children never to ask a man where he's from, because he said if he's from Texas, he'll tell you, and if he's not, it's not nice to embarrass <laughs> I'm a counselor in a little country school, and I have kindergarten through 12th grade. I have 400 little country kids that I work with. And in our elementary school, as in most of them in Texas, when the boys and girls in the morning pledge their allegiance to the American flag, they then turn to the Texas flag and say a pledge of allegiance to it. Um, I used to think that was a bit much. I have decided that it's okay to feel a loyalty to your home. I know now that it was inevitable that I marry an alcoholic. If I hadn't married a Texas alcoholic, I would have married another one somewhere. But I want you to know that I tried not to. I decided the one way I could avoid the life I had seen my mother have, those early years of my life, would be not to date anyone who drank. And so I didn't. Now, at Baylor, that wasn't too hard. It's kind of a Baptist convent, you know. <laughs> uh, no one, if you drank, you were sent home. So it was just not a problem there. And I had never seen my husband, Charles, take a drink when we married. I know now because you told me so that it was as if he had had tuberculosis and he had not yet started hemorrhaging. You told me that drinking is only a symptom of the illness. Of course I found an alcoholic to marry. The first man I had ever loved, my whole male orientation, was to an alcoholic. I got all my feelings of self-worth by rescuing and taking care of and, of course, I found someone who would give me an opportunity to do that on a regular basis. I learned from you that sick people marry sick people, and they rear sick children. I hope you won't let anyone tell you anything different. But he didn't drink at all when we married, and we lived in Corpus Christi for a year, in San Antonio for four years. If you ever go to Texas, don't, don't miss San Antonio. It's a colorful, beautiful old city. Then we moved out on the desert in West Texas to his hometown, Odessa. My mother thought I had moved to the end of the world. She used to call it Odessaluk. <laughs> and I never learned to love the sandstorm or the barrenness. The landscape is somewhat like that of the moon. But I love West Texas people. They are a breed apart. I have missed them in the years that I have been gone from there. They don't know there's anything they can't do, and so they do it. You know people like that? Marvelous people. I'm very grateful that that's where we found you. And that's where I had my first 18 years in the program. Because West Texans are gung-ho and enthusiastic and they get things done. Looking back, I know that there were slogans that I lived by before you gave me some better ones. One of them was, what will people think? Did you have that one? How about don't rock the boat? I also had, uh, it, it's not that bad yet. Remember that? Did you ever play Guess What I'm Mad About? <laughs> Charles used to say I could ask him a question, answer it myself, and go away mad. <laughs> I did all the wrong things during the drinking years, and I kept on doing them. They didn't work, but that did not deter me. I had a cleaning woman for many years whom I loved and appreciated and whom I have missed. Wow. 
she enjoyed ironing. And um, everyone in Texas nearly loves football. And especially in football season, she would watch TV while she ironed. But she never caught on to instant replay. And she would say things like, maybe this time you'll catch it. <laughs> and I thought, that's what I was like. It never worked, but maybe this time. And my behavior was a series of instant replays. And, uh, you know, it didn't, of course it didn't work. <laughs> I protected this man. I rescued him and I lied for him to drinking. We were blindsided by alcoholism. Within five years, he went from very casual social drinking to blackout. It was, it was fast. I didn't know what hit us. It was just, it was the first thing I had ever run across in my life that I couldn't manage or control. And I was confused and bewildered because I didn't know there would be things over which I would be powerless. So I played let's pretend as diligently as he drank. And he was almost literally loved to death. And that can happen. I was as obsessed with him as he was compelled to drink. That is a free Al-Anon trait, you know. I'm sure you know that if an Al-Anon is drowning, someone else's life flashes in front of her eyes. That is obsession. I would like you to think that I stayed with him out of love and loyalty. I did not. I stayed out of pride. And when I'm this far from home, I have to explain that just a little bit. I spent the first ten years of my life in Jacksonville, Florida, which is on the Georgia border. And the rest of my life before I married in Pensacola, which is on the Alabama border. And that part of Florida, when I was growing up, was very much the deep south. And you have no reason to know this, but women of my generation in the deep south were given a specific kind of upbringing. It wasn't all bad. I was taught by precept and example that if you keep the men happy, everything else falls into place. Nothing wrong with that if they had said, but you don't give up big chunks of your own personhood to do that. And no one said that. I was taught and made to repeat after my mother and my aunts and my grandmother that you're a lady in the parlor, a wizard in the kitchen, a hussy in the bedroom. Nothing wrong with that if they had said, but it's nobody else's job on this earth to make you happy. That's up to you to see that your needs are met. And they didn't add that. I never went anywhere without a white linen handkerchief, and for a great many years, I didn't go anywhere without white gloves. I still won't wear white shoes after Labor Day or before Easter. And the term steel magnolia was drilled into me long before there was a play in a movie of the same name. And people brought up like that, maybe, well, my grandmother lived in a farmhouse that was made of weathered wood before weathered wood was fashionable. And she said she might be too poor to paint, but she was too proud to whitewash. That kind of pride. We had cloth napkins at our house that were packed. That kind of pride. And so one did not air one's dirty linen in public. And if you lived with a man, you didn't criticize him to other people. So, of course, I didn't tell anybody about this problem, and my solution was to try harder. I always think of the Charlie Brown cartoon. Charlie Brown is teaching his little sister, Sally, long division. And she is saying, how many times will 24 go into 12? He says, 24 won't go into 12. And she says, it will if you push. That was my thinking. And I got into Al-Anon, and I was told that we don't try to force solutions. But that drive to fix it is in every cell of our being. I'm afraid I wasn't very tolerant of alcoholics. 
I remembered the pain and the grief at the hands of my father, whom I had loved very much nonetheless. But I didn't understand people who messed up their lives. I had a very inauspicious beginning, okay? And I had attended an expensive university and paid for it myself. I had married the man I wanted. He was handsome and brilliant and could be charming. I had the children I wanted when I wanted them. I had a career at which I was a success and which I loved. And I had no tolerance for nor understanding of people who messed up their lives. Until I got a sponsor who made me repeat. I'm surprised she didn't make me write it on the blackboard a hundred times. But she made me repeat, we are not morally superior to sick people. Over and over and over. I did a few things right during those years. I used to say by accident, I know now by the grace of God. I never called Charles a drunk. I never thought of him that way. I was married to a very fine man who drank too much, who had what my Irish grandmother called the failing. <laughs> At some level, I knew he was sick. I knew he wouldn't be that way because he wanted to be. And even during the worst of those years, I had a God whom I worshipped and served, not God as I understand him today. But I hope that if I live another 28 years, my understanding of God will have deepened and broadened, too. Do you ever get to remembering, you know, the weller we are, the sicker we can see that we were? English teachers are allowed to make up their own words. Um, it's in our contract. <laughs> I had a doctor who was Alamon before I found you, and I say that because it was he who said, you must do what is necessary for your sanity and your serenity regardless. And he gave me permission when I needed it very much. It was this doctor who suggested that I return to teaching school. I had taught before I married, but I was keeping all the rules, and back then the rules said a good mother didn't work outside her home. But he was urging me to go back to teaching, and I am not a spontaneous person. I wish I were. I have worked my way up to flexible, but I will never make frivolous. So I thought about it for a year. And then I did return. I taught English in a very fine, very affluent, very large high school. Uh, I know people who don't think that 150 17-year-olds every day would constitute therapy, but they did for me. It was like taking pressure off a wound when I was in that classroom. I used to tell them they were a doctor's prescription, that he had written them on a prescription pad, and he did. It was not one long honeymoon. There were days when I wished for retroactive birth control, but not usually. That's how we were when we got to you. I respected Charles then, and I still do in retrospect for the fact that he never stopped trying to find an answer. We never suspected alcoholism. He wasn't violent. He didn't drink in the morning. He always drank at home. He didn't fit my stereotypical picture of an, al of a, of an alcoholic. He went to doctors. He went to lay counselors. He went to Ministers, he went through clinics. He went through both our local psychiatrists rather quickly because, of course, he didn't tell them the truth about anything. And finally, a business associate of his suggested that he see a counselor who was doing family counseling in Odessa at that time, a psychologist, strangest lady I ever met, very eccentric. It'll tell you something about her when I tell you that his first appointment with her was at 12.30 a.m. And it will tell you something about him when I tell you he was there. He kept it. And it was she who sent us to you people. Uh, he'd been seeing her about six weeks. It was January of 1964. I was still home from school for the Christmas holidays. Are there moments in your life that are so lucid, so great, 
But you remember every detail, the carpet, the curtains, everything. I remember this in such detail. When she, she called and when she told me her name over the phone, of course, I recognized it. She said, your husband is an alcoholic. This is a family illness. I need to talk to you, too. And all of my deep south upbringing went out the window, and I said, you're out of your mind, and hung up. She had hit a nerve, and I didn't want to talk about it. Before I could leave the room, the phone rang again, and when I picked it up before I could say hello, she said, don't hang up. I know what you've been through. Well, she couldn't know. I hadn't told anybody. <laughs> she couldn't possibly know. And I thought all the tears had long since been shed. And I stood there with that phone in my hand, and I cried, and I cried. That was your first gift to me, was the freedom to cry. I cry any time I please now. Charles used to say I could cry reading telephone directories or menus. No, but as Cliff says, supermarket openings are rather moving. <laughs> Television commercials, the Kodak ones undo me every time. It's, it's a real, it's a real freedom. I did go to see her, and it was she who sent it to you all. And for six months, I would go only to open meetings. And I wouldn't go to one of those if Charles was due to get any memento of sobriety. I guess your group see that. Little tips for 30 days, 90 days. I would have had to hear him say, my name is Charles and I'm an alcoholic. And I didn't want to hear that. The meetings at which these tips were given were open meetings. And other people had their families there. But I didn't go. And if anyone had the questionable judgment to invite me to Al-Anon, I treated them the way I had been brought up to treat people that you want to have nothing to do with. I was kind but cool. And I explained that I had not done the drinking and I didn't need the therapy. And if we had sobriety at our house, there would be no problem. <laughs> I can't even say that with a straight face. <laughs> In July of that year, we went back to San Antonio. I told you we'd lived there and loved it. And we went back every chance we got. And Charles had a slip. He said, I must always tell you it was not a slip. It was a carefully planned drunk. I know now it wasn't his worst one or his longest one. To his credit, he never drove, drinking or hungover. So three days later, I'm driving us back to West Texas, and he says to me, I'll have to tell my AA group about this. I'm due to get a six-month tip next week. And in my appalling ignorance, I said, I won't tell anybody. And I have to tell you that to say this is what got my attention. He explained to me that wasn't the name of the game. And I decided that I was going to go down there and take a look at those people. We had been married at that time for 14 years, and this man had never once said to me, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I made a mistake. And he was, in essence, going to say that to these people that he had known six months. And I was angry. So I went to take another look at them. And it was at this point that someone invited me to attend Al-Anon, and I heard her invitation. I used to say, I don't know why I could hear her when I hadn't heard anyone else for six months. Well, I have done three, I think, very thorough and comprehensive fourth and fifth steps in these almost three decades. And God revealed to me with the very first one more about myself than I was interested in knowing. And one of the things he revealed to me was why I could hear her. And rigorous honesty requires that I tell you, and I hate to, but this was a woman I considered as good as I was. It takes what it takes, okay? She had everything I considered important. She had money and looks and brains and breeding and prestige and status. She still has everything I considered important. But it's certainly a different list this morning. You see, I have to tell you that I married considerably above myself. 
Charles used to say I shouldn't say that. I don't know any other way to say it. I married a family that had a great deal of money and still had enormous prestige. And there was nobody not allowed to play with me anymore. But I needed that. And I was so afraid that if I went down to that group with those people, I would lose all of that. Of course, I had prayed for help, but I thought God was showing very bad faith. This wasn't at all <laughs> what I had in mind. So I began attending Alamon. We have a pamphlet in our literature entitled Living with Sobriety. And in it, it says, while sobriety can be a welcome miracle, it does not guarantee happiness. And I believe I'm quoting Bill Wilson, actually. He said, we consider that man unthinking who says that sobriety is enough. It is essential, but it is not enough. And Charles and I had a very stormy and difficult sobriety. He was stark, raving sober. He was very much aware of all of my defects of character. He was no longer held back by guilt from mentioning them loudly and clearly and frequently. I found out that when the alcohol is gone, the ism remains. And it was this from which he was trying to recover, as I tried to recover from my own illness. The overlay of fantasy was so hard for me to give up. You know, the, the insistence that we were a normal family and that there was nothing wrong. I was in pretty bad shape. I got to get so emotionally frozen. Now, I didn't think this through during the years of the drinking, okay? But it's as if I had thought during those years that the feelings had valves or faucets, and I would turn off the one marked anger. And I would turn off the one marked resentment and the one marked self-pity. Because you cannot watch someone you love with every cell of your being killing himself and be helpless to do anything about it. You can't live with pain like that. So you find a way to turn it off. What I didn't know until I got to you was that there is one valve and it's marked feelings. So I got to you emotionally frozen. And living where you do, you know that when that which has been frozen against us all, there is a great deal of pain. And for several years, whenever I hurt in a new place, it was some frozen pocket that still had not thawed yet. I came in behind thick defensive walls. They take different shapes and forms, by the way. Some people in our group said that when the alcoholic was drinking, they didn't answer the door or the phone and they pulled the shades down and they hid. I joined everything in town and ran most of them and... Uh, <laughs> When I was with you two weeks and you had not asked me to be president, I thought you obviously didn't know who I was. That was my defense, and if I don't watch it, even today, I use busyness as a narcotic. It's so easy for me to get back into that. I no longer batter at these defensive walls as I used to. I used to feel like, you know, let me in. I want to be your friend. I've decided that's kind of an emotional rape, and I don't do that anymore. People will let down their defenses when they feel safe enough to do so. Maybe if when there's a little chink in their armor and they look out, we can let them know that the natives are friendly and we can be warm and loving and caring enough that they will put down their swords as their hostility eases and eventually even their shields when they feel safe enough. That's the way it happened with me. And I began to hear the program not all at once and not from just one person. Somehow I began to hear do you realize that you're sick too? And as I say, as often as I get a chance to, alcoholism was not trendy in 1964. It was not the end thing to be alcoholic. There were not celebrities shouting from the rooftop that they were alcoholic. Nobody knew the whole family was sick. 
there was this terrible stigma attached to alcoholism. And so, of course, I didn't know that. It was very hard for me to accept. But when I did, I realized that I'd have to do what I was told, and that was hard for me, too. I mentioned that I'm a counselor in a little country school. Two years ago, I had been visiting with a first grader, and I was walking him back to his classroom. Darling little boy, mop of black hair, big black eyes. He said, uh, my teacher's not here today. I said, yeah, I noticed. He said, she's sick. I said, yes. He said, they send another teacher. I said, yes, they do. He said, when I'm sick, they don't send another little boy. And while I was explaining to him that no one could possibly take his place, I thought, oh, the times we would send someone else to do it for us if we could. But no one can learn for him. and No one could recover for me. My group said that we don't hear the answer until we ask the question. And you don't ask the question if you already have all the answers, and God forgive me, I thought that I had them. When they realized they couldn't teach someone who already knows everything, and that didn't take long, my sponsor said, you're going to have to give up some old ideas. God can only fill an empty vessel, she said. You cannot put new wine in old bottles, she said. So I began to unlearn some things that well-meaning people, out of the kindness of their heart, had taught me, thinking they were telling me the truth. I bet you got some of these, too. One of them was, God helps those who help themselves. Did you get that one? He does not, you know. He helps those who ask. And the times I have needed him most desperately, I could not have helped myself if my life had depended on it, and it very nearly did. God helps those who ask. I was brought up, and I'll bet you were, too, being taught that mature people don't need help. They stand on their own two feet. They handle their own problems, right? Wrong. Infants are dependent. Adolescents are independent. I'll do it myself. It's a phase they have to go through in the course of growing up. But mature adults are very happily interdependent. I am not talking about a sick, clinging neediness. I am talking about a very healthy need for each other that we can provide, especially in this program. I learned that some pain is necessary for my spiritual education, but misery is optional, and I do not opt to be miserable anymore. If you were to see my long-distance charges, you would know that I have indeed learned to ask for help. If I can't make it through the night in Texas, I have friends in California who are still awake. Smith's wife, Pat, says I only love her for a time zone. <laughs> and if California's asleep, there's Hawaii. I mean, I can reach out. There are people everywhere. I learned that I have not only a right to, but a responsibility for taking care of myself, and that includes emotionally. That some pain can be avoided. I do not have to die on every cross today just because I see it there. I was taught growing up that you put everyone else first and yourself last. No, that's wrong, too. I have learned not to demand me first, but to at least say my turn and to do something toward taking care of myself so I'll have something to bring you when I come to you, for instance, and something to take to those 400 youngsters every day that I work with. My sponsor moved away after 11 years, and I got another one, and if I had a second hour to talk to you, I would talk about sponsorship. I do not understand the kind of ego that presumes to undertake this marvelous, spiritual journey, unguided and undirected. My sponsor is Donna Lancaster, and she insists that I tell you both her names. She doesn't consider a meeting at the public level. She was born with no legs. 
It's hard for me to explain to her how unfair life is sometimes. <laughs> she flies her own plane. She drives her own car. She does anything she pleases. And I have tremendous love and regard and respect for her. She taught me that before any challenging or difficult situation, there are two questions I should ask. One is, what is in my best interest here? Well, now, you can't ask that and be a martyr. And I had been such a good martyr. I had suffered so nobly. Nobly. <laughs> I have a friend who says she required plastic surgery to remove her hand from her forehead when she got to Alamon. And the other question I must ask myself is, what will enable me to like myself later? And that's a big one. But it, oh, it's a big one. Work, it got me through a vain, very painful divorce some years ago. I would not change one word I said or one thing I did during that divorce. Well, that's a neat feeling, and I owe that to you. I was brought up being told what you don't know won't hurt you. What I didn't know nearly destroyed poor people. What you don't know can kill you. And so time and time again I had to unlearn in order to learn what you had to teach me. And I, I fell in love with the program and I got greedy for it. I didn't want a spiritual band-aid, you know. I didn't want to settle for crumbs when the banquet was spread. I wanted everything I could get. And I am attracted to people who are greedy for the program. The principles, and there are hundreds of them, and I have time to mention only a few. But the basic one in Al-Anon, of course, is detachment and release. I was told release with love. That isn't how I did it at first. I was told to do it, though. They said, if you don't like the warts, let go of the frog. <laughs> I didn't like the warts. I didn't like the person I had become. But I would have turned him over to the Ku Klux Klan or the Communist Party or anyone that would have taken him, and my sponsor would say, no, no, with love. <laughs> you know, with love. I finally got the hang of that. It's still not what I do best in the program. And there are times when I have to withdraw emotionally before I can release. There are times when I release with anger for a while before I can with love. And everything I've ever released in my life has claw marks all over it, but I'm better at it than I used to be. I began to realize that God could work directly through my husband and children and later on those people I sponsored. I had not known that. I thought he had to come through me. I had always been willing to tell them God's will for their lives. They didn't even have to ask. That's a symptom of untreated Alanonism, you know, rush in and rescue. Today, most of the time, I can listen to your feelings without trying to fix you. Now, everything in me wants to fix you. But I bite my tongue and I sit on my hands, and today, most of the time, I can listen. Because, after all, we do not give advice. And our literature says that repeatedly. We can share our experiences and our observations. I didn't see how anyone could help anyone who didn't give advice. And when I began asking that, my sponsor said, what we do is help people see their available options. And I thought about that a long time. When I got into Al-Anon, I thought I had three options. I could divorce Charles. I could live with him while we both tried to recover in our programs. Or I could have a close, warm, loving, communicative marriage. Unfortunately, I opted for number three, and that was not one of my available options. And today, any time I'm miserable, it's because I have opted for something that is not available to me. And I need you. 
to show me what my options are and perhaps more importantly, what they are not. And this is one thing I'm able to do with the people whom I sponsor. I tried to uh, quit translating. Did you ever translate? Now, honey, what your daddy meant was. I will have to take a few minutes regardless and tell you about kids in the program. Our children, our son and our daughter, were in Alateen for 10 years each. They went in when we had a preteen group and our son stayed. We had a post-teen group for a long time in Texas. I could see how much their father's drinking had damaged them, and I would tell you if you gave me half a chance. But my group made me look at how I had harmed them, and I thought I could not stand it. I would have died for them in a minute, as you would for your children. I would never knowingly have hurt them. Of course, I damaged them by anger. They were programmed the first ten years of their lives with, by an enraged mother. But I think the worst harm I did them was by denial. My children are bright, as yours are, and intuitive. And they knew something was badly wrong at our house. But when they asked this woman to whom they should have been able to turn for the truth under any circumstances, I said to them, oh, darling, everything's all right. No, there's nothing wrong. Now, I submit to you that if you grow up being told that what you are seeing and feeling and sensing is wrong, then you grow up doubting your judgment. Doubting your reason. Or as my grown-up daughter says today, assuming that people who love you will lie to you. And that's part of being loved. I have some wonderful stories about the kids being in the program too, but I really will have to save them for another time. I learned from you that I had a choice I could respond rather than react. I did not know that. If Charles got angry, I got angry. If he got depressed, I got depressed. I thought this meant we were close. I did not know about emotional slavery. It's as if I waked up in the morning and said to him, good morning, how do I feel today? (laughs) It was entirely up to him. And my group said, hey, you can take your sails out of his wind. And neither he nor anyone else will determine the direction in which you go. That's up to you. They said you can choose your response. It need never depend on the actions or behavior of other people. Slowly I began to take the risk of being the person I am. You'll pay a high emotional price for that. It costs me a marriage. It may not cost you that much. But I, I think you pay a higher emotional price trying to be something you're not. It's, it's um, easy. It was easy for me to say, well, it's only with him that, that I am not who I really am. I mean, most of the time I am. And a marvelous AA from St. Paul. Minnesota, Bob B. said to me one time on the beach in Georgia when we were both talking at the same time at a convention, he said, that's like a sock in the wash. It will color every other part of your life. No, you cannot be phony in one part and think that you're getting by with it. So the price is high, but pretending costs more. And I had to quit pretending. You had told me to look at the source, and the source was God, and only he could provide Uh, Things that I look to other people for. For instance, only God can give us unconditional love. You know, total acceptance. Other people can almost not do that. And you said that it was not anyone's assignment on this earth to make me happy, but mine. You told me that I did not acquire squatter's rights on someone's life. 
because I married it or gave birth to it. That was a real freedom for my family. That was a great gift that you gave to them. Hey, listen, I didn't learn this all at once, and I still don't have it all. I learned it slowly and painfully, incident by incident, through blood, sweat, and tears, one day at a time. And there are still days when I think, what program? God who? And when that happens, I call one of you, and you will tell me what program and God who. Usually in the words I gave to you, I hate that. Don't do that to me. <laughs> Don't say, well, as you've told me. <laughs> But I take great comfort in some of the truths of this program that are not stressed as often as I wish they were. One is that, of course, we do not have to be perfect. Practice makes progress. And the marvelous truth that recovery is progressive, too. The more we have, the more we can get. I gave myself permission to have relapses. I might as well. I have them. One serious relapse since I was last with you, I'll tell you about I was in Dallas visiting my son. It was a bright, sunshiny day, but I have had three kinds of arthritis since childhood, and I have a knee that buckled and gave way, and I fell down the stairs outside his condo. It was a very bad fall. I was unconscious. He called the paramedics who came and took me to the emergency room of a hospital. I don't remember any of that. I was coming, too, as they lifted me from the stretcher, in the ambulance to the gurney in the emergency room. I came to in time to hear the nurse saying, now just lay back and take deep breaths. And coming out of total oblivion, I said, that lie back. I will lie back and take deep breaths. <laughs> I passed out again, but when I came to, I could not shut up. I said, you see, dear, you say it so many times every day, you really must learn to say it correctly. <laughs> My son was putting his hands over his eyes. He said, she doesn't do this to total strangers usually, really, she doesn't. <laughs> fortunately, the nurse thought it was funny, fortunately. But my point in telling you is to say that when my defenses get down, I am, by golly, going to straighten out the world. And that's a little untreated Elanonism, a little relapse there. Because, of course, I talk the talk better than I walk the walk. Of course I do. And I walk the walk better than I feel the feeling. <laughs> but I'm still the best Blanche I have ever had. And I owe you gratitude for that. What I am learning today is just as new and scary to me as what you are learning after one year or five or ten I need a hand to hold while I look around corners, you know, into new areas. And oh, thank God, one of your hands has always been there. Sometimes God leads me and sometimes he drives me. And sometimes I wish he wouldn't and sometimes I'm afraid he won't. I have to hurry. These children are fine today, I think. Thank you, and I mean literally thank you. Both my son and daughter have been married and divorced. My daughter is a journalist. She's political editor for the St. Petersburg Times in Florida, which was always her other home anyhow. She is with, uh, she's in New Hampshire this week because in New Hampshire there's a primary election that is considered very important and she's up there freezing to death covering it. It's a long way from Florida. This is a very prestigious and important newspaper and you don't know that if you're not a journalist and I'm not, but she told me so. <laughs> She makes three times the money I do, which wouldn't be hard, but this is my kid, you know? 
She was married some years ago, and when we were planning the wedding, she and her groom were saying to her father and me, there is no rule that says that your attendant has to be a girl, and the person I love most in the world is my brother, and I want him to stand with me. Well, I opened my mouth to give her the benefit of my wisdom, and her brother beat me to it. He said, oh, I've never been a bride's person before. That sounds neat. Okay, it's all your fault. You're the ones who taught her she can be who she is. And that subversive organizationality team, you taught her that. <laughs> the groom said, well, in that case, I'm really closer to my sister than I am my brother. And it will balance the wedding party if she stands with me. And so we had a best woman and a man of honor. <laughs> it worked fine. I sat there crying, as the mother of the bride is allowed to do, thinking sobriety made this possible. <laughs> My son is a commercial photographer in Dallas, and he too is extremely successful. We are achievers. We don't do intimate relationships too well, but we are achievers. And we get things done. He has won two Clios, which is the highest award you can win in advertising. He was the first photographer outside an agency, you know, freelance on his own, to win one outside of New York or another country. So the Dallas papers and trade journals made a big deal of it. And do you know they never once after his name put a comma and said the son of? <laughs> That's Okay. I know where his talent comes from, and it's not his, <laughs> not his parents. I'd had many years by then for your telling me the source, <laughs> and that the rest of us are channels. You know, we date the people that he meet, that we meet, and he meets models. For a long time, when I left Texas to go talk somewhere, I'd have several hours at the Dallas airport. If you leave Texas, you go to Dallas first. We we say when you die before you go to heaven or hell, you'll go to Dallas first. And they will route you accordingly. And this was before he got so important I had to go through secretaries to get to him. And he would come out sometimes and um, visit with me. He always had one of these gorgeous young women on his arm, you know. They all weigh 36 pounds and have legs up to their armpits. But <laughs> I would tell him, I would tell him if I wanted to feel dowdy, I could stay home and iron, you know. I, Oh, my. They have not had to do any drugs or drinking. I have reared two quintessential <laughs> caretakers. Uh, my daughter says if you put her down in a room of a thousand men all dressed just alike and there is one dysfunctional one, she will find him. Why not? Her mother always did, you know. They've never even had a cavity. I tell them they should tell the dentist that that was excellent parenting. <laughs> The dentist seems to think it was because we have a lot of fluoride in West Texas water. <laughs> They've never had a traffic ticket. I uh, sometimes wish they drank. I'd know more to do for them if they did, you know. They have all the problems that people have who grew up around alcoholism. You taught me that in any relationship, parent-child, lovers, friends, husband-wife, there are ebbs and flows. And I no longer panic when the ebb hits. 
But my relationship with my son has been a real ebb for three and a half years. And this is extremely painful for me. If you run out of anything to pray about, I would appreciate your praying about that. Please don't hear this as bad news. Charles and I lost our marriage for a variety of reasons that it would not be at all appropriate for me to go into behind a podium, but we tried to revive it. And it was like giving artificial respiration to a corpse. There was nothing we could do. Because people who love us always ask. I always say, no, he didn't leave me for another woman. No, I didn't throw him out for another man. No, he didn't resume drinking. He would have had 24 years of sobriety in July of 1988, but he died in April of that year. I was astonished at the intensity of my grief because we had been apart for several years by then. It was painful beyond anything I had thought it might be. But back to the divorce, our recovery had taken us down different roads and in different directions. And for reasons that I don't understand, something toxic seemed to happen when we tried to relate to each other that didn't happen when we related to other people. And we could not gain any further recovery in the framework of a marriage that was damaged beyond repair, that was sick beyond healing. You had told me that marriages made in sickness do not always survive health. And I had not wanted to believe it, but I know today it's true. It was not a lack of love. But if you haven't lived this long and haven't learned, if you have lived this long and you haven't yet learned that love is not enough, you haven't been paying attention. We released each other with dignity and respect. We really did. But after a long marriage, divorce is like an amputation. I will always regret not the divorce, but the necessity for it. Does that make sense? As I would have regretted the necessity for an amputation. It might save my life, but the agony was intense. You told me that when suffering hits, I have no right to back God into a corner and shake my finger in his face and say, why me? After all, why not me? But you told me instead I was supposed to say, what am I supposed to understand? So I have been asking that. And not all the answers are in, but I have understood quite a few things as a result of this. One was that God and I are enough. And for a woman of my generation, this is a biggie. I understand that I'm a whole person without a man. And I, oh, (laughs) okay. And that means that uh, the men who have been in my life these last, Ten years were there because we both wanted them to be and not because one of us had a loose umbilical cord that we were trying to plug into the other as a life support system. People who love learning go back to school at times of stress and so the year after my divorce I began to look for a graduate school. I found the longest, hardest master's program you can imagine at the University of Texas in Austin. I um, wanted to get a degree in psychology and counseling psychology so that I could do a little different job in the school. I love teaching English, but I thought it would... Listen, a good teacher does a lot of counseling. I thought I ought to get a piece of paper that said I could, you know. (laughs) And when I found this, I said to my children, I don't know, this is going to take three years and a thesis. Do you know how old I'll be in three years if I go get a master's degree? And my son said, how old will you be in three years if you don't? It was very hard for me to pull up roots, to leave my comfort zone, to sell the house my kids grew up in. 
But you had told me the houses are only brick and wood and that any house I live in is God's house and I can take the memories with me. You would have laughed to see me in graduate school. I kept wanting to teach the class. I kept wanting to say to the others, honey, what the professor meant was. (laughs) I also wanted to correct their grammar, but I don't do that when I'm conscious. I did get that master's degree in counseling psychology, and I worked part-time at our community college as a counselor, and then I had one class I taught there for five years. It was a class in human sexuality. It was fun being interviewed for it. How do you ascertain that someone is qualified to teach a sex class? Uh, They asked an interesting question. (laughs) It was a marvelous class. It had to be taught by a counselor. And we had excellent visual aids, and I don't get smart. And we had uh, we had a marvelous textbook, and we had excellent films, and I had a wonderful time. One thing about it, unlike the kids in my English classes, the kids in the sex class never once said, "What are we learning this for? We'll never use this." Never. <laughs> and so my life became full and happy. I am not young, and I have never been beautiful, but there have always been men who cared for me. And this is neat because I really like men. I'm comfortable with them. My life would have been a great deal less complicated if I did not like them so much. And so I had been hanging out with Bob Miller for some years, and I was totally comfortable with him, and I knew that I loved him very much. But he liked living alone, too. About once a year, we talked about marriage. But we never both wanted to at the same time. You know how that goes? Last October, I was getting ready to go talk in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was Halloween night, and we were on the phone, and I said, you know, you have your 25th AA birthday coming up in five weeks. I think we ought to do something really big for the 25th one. How would you like to celebrate it? And he said, I think I'd like to get married. Now, I am rarely at a loss for words. Rarely. (laughs) But I almost said, to whom, you know? (laughs) Before I could say anything else, he said, quickly, I have talked to my sponsor. (laughs) My three children, my accountant, and my lawyer, and they all think it's a good idea. (laughs) Is that romantic or what? (laughs) I said, well, let me talk to some people, too. I went on to talk to my sponsor, Donna, was there, and there are people that I called and and talked to, and I went back home and I said, hey, let's do this. This sounds like a great idea. We've decided that people who are already happy make the best husbands and wives. We had a small, warm, wonderful wedding. I grew up Southern Baptist. I no longer have a church and a minister. He's an ardent Episcopalian that he does, so we were married in his church. Pat and Kiss came out from California to make sure it was legal. I'm not sure it would have been without them. (laughs) You should have seen this Southern Baptist going through those complicated Episcopal rituals. I was clumsy and and awkward and inept, but somehow we got it done. And, of course, most of the people there, well, except for his employees and my school friends, were people in the program. He had suggested that in view of our age, we might use Amazing Grace as a wedding march, but I refused to do that. (laughs) We have bought an absolutely beautiful, big, new house. 
that we would be moving into this weekend, but you asked me before he did, and so I had to come be with you, you know. This is the first conference we've been to as husband and wife. It'll always be very special to us, and I want you all to meet him. Bob, would you stand up a minute, honey? My daughter was my attendant. She said she can't believe I married an Episcopalian Rotarian. I mean, you know how journalists are. (laughs) My son couldn't bring himself to come, but he sent us each a letter wishing us well, and that was the breakthrough. That was the first communication in three and a half years. Change is very hard for me. I'm sure it's not for you, of course, but it is hard for me. I had that graphically brought home to me the first week I was working as a counselor in this little country school. First week. Well, let me back up. In graduate school, I got a great deal of affirmation and approval. But, of course, I got a couple of suggestions. And you know those are the ones I remember, don't you? Rather than the nice things. One of them was that I'm not good at body language. I am so verbally oriented that you have to say to me, Blanche, read my lips. I am depressed. Then I'll know you are. (laughs) And, by the way, I was told to watch television with the sound off to work on that. But the other one was that I tend to mix teaching and counseling, and they are two entirely different things. And I found that out the first week on my new job. A mother of a first grader called, darling little boy. She said, he's having trouble on the bus. Will you see what's going on? So I called him into my office, and we were chatting, and I said, what's the matter on the bus? Well, he said, those kids pester me. I said, "Uh uh-huh, what what do you do when they pester you? Well, I don't use bad words. I said, I'm certainly glad to hear it. What do you do? He reached over and got my tablet. (laughs) Tongue between the teeth, very laboriously printed, H-S-I-T. He said, I wrote that down. I said, "Uh uh-huh, then what? Well, I showed it to them. I said, yes. And he said, well, they couldn't read it. Well, now, once an English teacher, I was like a fire horse hearing the bell. I said, darling, you didn't spell it right. Here, let me show you this. Can you believe that? I was crossing the T before I thought, what am I doing? I don't think this is what they hired me for. I haven't taught any more obscenities to six-year-olds. <laughs> and I hope that when he went home, no one said, what did you learn in school today? <laughs> but it, it just reminded me so graphically of how hard it is for me to change. But with a new marriage and a new home, I'm going to get the hang of it. Just any time now. I've got to hush. You did what I asked you to. You did love me back. While I was talking, and I felt very safe and very good with you, and I thank you for that. I end every talk with some lines from our Elanon literature that I like very much. They say today, this very moment, is all you're sure of, and that flashing instant has gone to join the past even before you're aware of it. With this dizzy spin of time, the only safe way to make each moment count is to make Al-Anon responses habitual. You can't go wrong following Al-Anon's teachings. With them, 
There is no regret for yesterday. There's guidance for today. And there's hope for tomorrow. So this is the promise from Al-Anon literature with which I leave you on this beautiful Sunday morning in this beautiful city in Vancouver, British Columbia. I wish you no regret for yesterday and guidance for today and hope for tomorrow.